Can we just skip ahead to the one on patience? That's a question I heard from more than one person when I announced that this sermon series would be on the fruits of the Spirit. Can't we just skip ahead to the one on patience? Now this little quip was of course intended to be cute, which it was, but it also bespoke something else, something important. It also bespoke how we are, at least most of us, acutely aware of how much we struggle with this particular fruit, with patience. We know we need more of it, yet we also know we mightily struggle to practice it. For in a busy world with lots of things demanding our attention and clear ideas of how best to utilize our time, we quite often then encounter things that stand in the way of our own purposes, of our own wants and wills and desires. And in the face of these things, we therefore inevitably experience impatience. And so then comes the question that everything else, and particularly this sermon, turns upon. The question of, how will we then respond to these feelings of impatience? Will we control them and thereby demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit? Or will we give in to them and thus push forward in pursuit of our own needs and wants and desires and purposes? When impatience arises, which it quite naturally always will, what will we do in response? What should we do in response? That is the question that this sermon will interrogate. But first, another question so as to help us along the way. What is the point of a miracle? You didn't see that coming, did you? I want to talk about miracles before we get back to patience. What is the point of a miracle? Not what is a miracle, but what is a miracle for? Or to put that question differently still, why does Jesus work miracles in the Gospels? Does he say, supply bread to the hungry just so they can have a meal? Does he heal the sick just so they can become whole? Does he raise the dead just so he can demonstrate his incomparable power? In other words, is this the only point that his miracles are making in the Gospels? Are they merely to demonstrate to people how great he is, how powerful he is? Is that all these miracles are about? Our faith is too simple if we think the answer is yes. For while the hungry do get fed in the moment, they will no doubt be hungry again tomorrow. And while the sick are healed now, there will no doubt be more who are sick tomorrow. And while, yes, his power over life and death is no doubt inconceivable to us, we nonetheless don't see Jesus raising back to life every dying individual in Galilee. 
So there's no doubt something more going on in the Gospels when we see Jesus working miracles. It's clearly about something else, too. And so here's what that something more, that something else is. Follow me here. Every miracle Jesus works, everything Jesus does and teaches and points to, it's all of a piece. It's all taken together, providing us a foretaste. That is to say, a picture, a snapshot, an anticipation of what the coming kingdom of God looks like. Everything we see Jesus doing in the Gospels is just that, a snapshot of what life and the coming new creation looks like. And so not only do the hungry get fed in the moment of the feeding of the 5,000, But so much more than that, Jesus here shows that in the coming kingdom of God, there is no food scarcity. No one goes hungry. Thus, the feeding miracles don't just feed. They show what satiation looks like in the coming kingdom of God. They help us understand it and see it and believe it. Same too with the healing miracles. Not only does, say, a leper see his skin restored to health, but so much more than that, Jesus shows in the act of healing that in the coming kingdom of God, disease does not carry the day. That all will be whole. The healing miracles don't just heal they show what wholeness looks like in the coming kingdom of God. They are anticipations. They are foretastes, foreshadowings, signposts. And so the point, which I hope is becoming clear, is that no matter how spectacular in the Gospels the miracle is, The miracle is always about more than just the miracle. It's about what the miracle points to. What it signifies. It's about how it anticipates, how it prefigures, how it gives insight into what the coming kingdom of God will be like. And thus how we ought to orient and understand and practice our own lives Today. Are you still with me? Okay. Having gone together on that quick discursion, let's look now at what this actually looks like in practice, what it looks like practically speaking. And we'll do this in Mark's gospel. Let us look together at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, the passage we just heard James read. And let us look at this passage and see where three different miracles occur in the span of 22 short verses. Now here in this passage, according to Mark, Jesus and his disciples have just stepped off the boat, fresh off a trip across the Sea of Galilee, and no sooner have their feet touched dry land than a man comes running up to them. He's panting and he's out of breath, saying to him, to Jesus, that his daughter is deathly ill. 
Now, here's an important detail in this story, one that we do very well not to read right past. This man is not just any man. This man is not just any father despairing over his daughter. No, this man is the leader of the local synagogue. In other words, this man is somebody. This man is connected. This man is important. And we all know what you do for important people, right? You help them. And we all know the unspoken principle behind why you help the important people, right? Because you know that if you help them, then they can help you. Right? We all understand that. Okay, so bear that detail in mind as we listen to the rest of the story. So here they are as the synagogue leader, a man named Jairus, sprints up to Jesus and frantic, struggling to regain his breath, says to Jesus' teacher, My young daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her that she might be made well. And to this, Jesus nods and immediately sets off with them. Why does he do that? Because he's Jairus, the local synagogue leader. Man, to get in good with him? Oh, what a coup that'll be. Now, it's important to step outside of the story once more and note another important detail here. Jesus' disciples are no doubt ecstatic about this. For sure, they love their leader, but let's face it, all the publicity about Jesus hasn't exactly been good publicity. You know, while his name at this point is playing pretty well with the common folk, he doesn't exactly have the best reputation with the local leaders and with the religious establishment. And so to get in good with someone like Jairus? Well, this was just the kind of thing they knew their guy needed. This was, in other words, for them a very important potential endorsement for their campaign. So they were pumped about this. All right, back to the story. So Jesus is asked by Jairus to come to his house, and Jesus assents and heads off in that direction. And so off they walk, Jairus no doubt wanting to go as quickly as possible, probably setting the pace at a little jog-slash-run, when all of a sudden they're swarmed by a crowd, just swarmed. Just a big congestion of people standing there in the road, many of them no doubt craning their necks for a good look at this much-talked-about Jesus guy. When all of a sudden, a nameless woman in that crowd comes up to Jesus and touches him. And the encounter stops Jesus in his tracks. And he looks to his disciples and he says, who was that who just touched me? To which his disciples, clearly irritated, say, how are we supposed to know? Look at all these people around you. In other words, come on, Jesus, stay focused, man. Stay on track. This is Jairus. Don't blow this. Suddenly, this nameless woman steps forward. And she bows down before Jesus. And according to Mark's narration, this is a woman who has suffered from hemorrhaging for over 12 years. And who spent every penny she ever had on medical care, all to no avail. And so here she is now, a beggar faceless street woman, a woman deemed unclean by society and by the law and significantly even by the synagogue. In other words, 
even by Jairus. But here's Jesus now stopping and talking to her, giving all of his attention to her. And so he stands and waits. And she says, I knew that if I but touched your clothes, I knew that I would then be made well. To which Jesus lovingly, his hand on her shoulder, looking her right in her eyes, says to her, Go in peace, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And just like that, she was healed. And so there's miracle number one. There's picture number one. What the kingdom of God is like. Sick people restored to health. And all manner of life made whole and disease free. Got it? Okay, on to miracle number two. So from here, Jesus looks to Jairus and nods as if to say, Okay, sorry for the interruption. Let's get back to your business. But no sooner have they gotten back underway than one of Jairus' servants comes running up to meet them and says, Sir, your daughter has died. And while Mark does not give us this detail, we are well within our bounds as faithful interpreters to assume that with this news, Jairus is crestfallen, just utterly devastated. As a father with little daughters myself, I can only imagine the visceral emotion that must have overcome Jairus in this moment. But seeing Jairus this way, Jesus says to him, Do not fear, do not worry. And with these words, Jesus continues forward. Continues onward to Jairus' house, even though Jairus' daughter is already now dead. And when he finally gets there, with Jairus, of course, right there behind him, Jesus makes his way through the crowd of mourning family members and toward the back of the house and into the little girl's room. And seeing the dead child lying there lifeless on the bed, Jesus takes her by the hand and he whispers, Talitha kum. Little girl, get up. Just like that, the dead girl awakens. Just like that, the dead girl is brought back to life. And just like that, there is miracle number two. There is picture number two of what the kingdom of God is like. Death being swallowed up by life. The power of finitude prevailing no more. And so then this passage closes by Mark saying of those who witnessed these two miracles, of those who saw these two anticipations, these two foretastes, these two foreshadowings of God's coming kingdom, Mark says, they were overcome with amazement at these two miracles. But wait a minute. Didn't I say there were three miracles in this passage? Didn't I say there were three foretastes of God's coming kingdom in this passage? Yes, I did. So where then was the third? We had a healing miracle, and we had a resurrection miracle, but where, where was that third miracle? That third one was right here. Right here in front of our faces, so mundane that we barely even recognize it. But I want you to stay with me right now because to see it and to absorb it is for us to learn the transcendent value of the virtue of patience. Here it is. 
walking side by side with Jairus, the synagogue leader, the broker of immense power in the community, a person who could do wonders for elevating Jesus' status and credibility in the eyes of those who really matter. Here with this massively important man beside him, Jesus has stopped and asked for help by a nobody. By a woman deemed so insignificant, she's not even given a name in the story. The first century equivalent of a homeless beggar asking him for some change. And instead of disregarding the woman, instead of brushing her off as a nuisance, as a distraction, as an inconvenience, instead of offering some half-baked excuse about being too busy, That is to say, instead of doing what every single person on the planet would have done, which is, of course, to do whatever it takes to make sure that Jairus' needs and wants are being attended to. Instead of that, Jesus stops what he's doing for the one with notoriety and gives equal time and attention to the nobody. And right there, there's your third miracle. A miracle perhaps even more miraculous than the other two. Instead of rushing headlong into the thing that will no doubt elevate his status and ingratiate him with the power brokers, instead Jesus stops and he makes time for this unwelcome interruption. You talk about a miracle. Here's a miracle. And you talk about a picture of the coming kingdom of God. Well, here's a picture of the coming kingdom of God. Of a coming reality in which we, unburdened by our need to get ahead, in which we, unburdened by our need to do what we want, by our need to satisfy our own goals and our own desires and our own purposes, Here's a picture of a coming reality where instead of all of that, we have the patience to attend to the holiness of each moment. And thus to see the radiant beauty of the things that in this broken world only seem to us to be distractions. Aristotle once said, patience is bitter but its fruit is sweet. Patience is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. This is a profound truth. And perhaps we might learn this lesson from paying closer attention to the person of Jesus. For think not that Jesus wasn't in a hurry to get to Jairus' house. Think not that Jesus failed to understand how Jairus was more important than this woman in the eyes of society. Think not that Jesus did not have his own wills and wants and desires in his life. That is, after all, what the whole scene in the Garden of Gethsemane is about. And finally, think not that this is the only scene in the Gospels where Jesus' plans are interrupted by what were to him unwelcome distractions For the goal that he was in that moment pursuing. Think not that for this happens in virtually every scene in the Gospels. He's up to one thing. But then is distracted by another. And remember. 
Jesus was every bit as human as we. Which means that with his mind set on one thing, these interruptions and inconveniences no doubt led to the same kind of visceral feelings of irritation and impatience with which such interruptions and inconveniences lead us. But the great difference, and thus the lesson to be learned here, is this. In feeling such impatience, Jesus chose to control it. And in encountering such inconveniences, Jesus transformed them into opportunities. And thus, in so doing, Jesus made known in the present what the future will look like in the coming kingdom of God. Every time we see Jesus do this, we see Jesus make manifest a reality in which the holiness of each moment and of each individual, which is ever-present and always around us, every time Jesus stopped and attended to these things, he made manifest a reality in which the holiness of the moment and of the indivisible, excuse me, and of the individual, was made visible. Make no mistake, patience is bitter. That's why so many looked ahead to the sermon on this particular fruit. We all struggle with it. We all struggle with patience. But make no mistake about this either. Though patience may be bitter, its fruit is sweet. If we can just get past our own busyness and our own needs and our own wants and our own comforts and our own purposes... And simply attend to the inconveniences and distractions that daily impede our paths. If so, we will taste the sweet fruit that such patience makes possible. And in so doing, we will find that patience is not only a fruit, but that it's also a miracle. A simple virtue that in choosing to perform it transforms the temporal into the eternal and with it transfigures the mundane into the holy every time. And so to the question, can we just skip ahead to the one on patience? I respond with this. Might we never wish to skip ahead? Because by skipping ahead, we skip right over the miracle of living. Amen.